Hello and welcome to an, our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey everyone, another great show for you today. I have with me Keith Giles. Uh, Keith is an author, a former pastor. Uh, he is the author of Jesus um, Unforsaken and the editor of Before You Lose Your Mind, Deconstructing Bad Theology in the Church. Keith is also a, a columnist and fellow troublemaker on Pathos Progressive Christian. He also co-hosts the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. He is with us here today. Welcome, Keith. Eric, it's uh, my supreme honor to be talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Before we jump in uh, to your books and stuff like that, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, how you got uh, into progressive Christianity uh, and where you came from, some, a little bit of context. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I was, um, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, um, grew up in a Southern Baptist church, licensed and ordained in a Southern Baptist uh, church, probably 30 something years ago, and um, served off and on on staff at different sort of Southern Baptist churches. And um, then my wife and I moved uh, from Texas to Cali Southern California. That was kind of our opportunity to kind of break away from that kind of Southern Baptist. We weren't sure we were Southern Baptist, like our parents were, but it was sort of like, but are we? And we kind of didn't feel like we necessarily were Southern Baptist. So we kind of looked around and we ended up in a vineyard church and uh, we ended up actually later on planting it in your church with some friends of ours, a little more, you know, charismatic uh, church. And that was a good experience, but it was out of that experience that I started. It was during that time I started, I guess what you would say, my deconstruction. Um, two, two major things that happened almost back to back. One of them was recognize, I sort of had my mind blown that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I could go to heaven when I died. That was a major shift for me. Probably the biggest shift for me was recognizing that I had the gospel all wrong. Um, and so having to go back, and this was as a, you know, as a pastor, I was licensed entertainment as a pastor. I had, you know, done all this stuff. I was writing blogs and I was, you know, preaching sermons and, and serving on staff at churches and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, like, wait a second, I got this thing all messed up. That's not about this at all. So um, that was a pretty radical shift for me. And then, again, around the same time, I also read this little PDF document by a guy named Ray Mayhew, and it was called Embezzlement, the Corporate Sin of American Christianity. And it essentially just looked at starting in the book of Acts and going through early church history up until the time of Constantine and documenting how this radical compassion for the poor and the outcast um, was the dominant sort of DNA of the early church. It's the reason, it's what set the church apart. It's, um, it's what drew pagans and other, other religions to Christianity because of this radical love for the poor and the orphan and the widow and um, you know, the sick and things like this. And so that, that, that also was a radical shift for me of sort of like, what is this really all about? What should Christianity be focused on? And it was a, a pretty radical shift. That led us into my wife, Wendy and I at the time then kind of felt like at the time God was leading us to leave that vineyard church and start a church. Uh, our family would leave and start a, a church that would give away everything to the poor in the community, very much like this New Testament model church, um, so which meant I wouldn't take a salary and all, all the offering would go to help people in our community. So the only way to pull that off was to meet in homes and for me to get a job like everybody else. So I did. <clears throat> and then that was, ironically, um, that was when I, I would say I went into quote unquote full-time ministry because it really was, it really kind of shifted and became my whole life. Um, it wasn't just something I did on Sunday mornings or, you know, Wednesday nights or something like that. Um, following Jesus kind of became every moment of my life. And that was a pretty radical shift too. So, uh, but I don't like the, I, I understand what your question says about progressive Christianity. And I know that I do fit in that sort of world, you know, a little um, more so than others, but uh, I kind of like to consider myself a regressive Christian, not a progressive Christian. What I mean by that is I, I really do 
the more I study early church history and what the earliest Christians were like, that's for me kind of where I personally want to get back to. I, that's how I want to live my life um, in that. So I, I would rather to see the church have a regressive posture. Let's go back like pre-Constantine, pre-Augustine, pre-Calvin, you know, pre-Luther. Let's like go way, way, way back to the earliest, earliest um, sort of Jesus followers who are just simply devoted to following Jesus. That, that for me is, I think, what I, I'm compelled to do. So a regressive, you're a regressive Christian. I'll have to, yes. I'll have to remember that. We'll have to uh, <laughs> talk to the Pathios people and see if they can get a new category set up for the regressives. Yeah, I might be in my own channel but all alone, but who knows? Maybe not. So recently you uh, uh, published this book called Unforsaken. Um, it's part of the Unseries that you do. What was the catalyst for starting this Unseries? Yeah. So yeah, this Jesus Un series. Um, well, it's hard to believe, but it was only about four years ago that I published the first one in the series and we're already six books into this thing. Um, so I've, I've, I've had a pretty, pretty aggressive clip writing and publishing these books. Um, but when I really, when I wrote Jesus Untangled, which was the first book, um, I didn't think of this as a series. I didn't think I was writing the first book of a series. Um, but when I, when I came to write the second book, which was Jesus Unbound, which really was just expanding and expounding on the second chapter of that book, of Untangled, which kind of introduced this idea of a flat Bible versus a, a Jesus-centric way of reading scripture. Oh, I, I got so many questions about that chapter in Untangled. I thought, like, well, let me write an entire book to really just explain what this approach to scripture looks like. And that, that's what Jesus Unbound was. So once I kind of followed that pattern. I said, okay, the second book will be Jesus Unbound and we'll have a similar cover scheme. And we'll, you know, my publisher, I think was really the one, this is Raphael Palindo who, who, um, who started Choir Publishing. Um, it was probably his suggestion that the second book kind of follow in that pattern, the Jesus Un kind of pattern. And once I did the second book, it was pretty much like every book after that kind of, um, follow the pattern, which, which I'm not against it. You know, I, I'm actually really, really proud of the fact that um, I've authored a six book series and, um, and, and all of them have done very well. They've all been very well received. And um, I have one more to do in the series and I'll wrap it up, but I'll be honest, as proud as I am that I've written this, which will finally be a seven part series um, eventually at the end of this year. Um, I'm looking forward to life after the Jesus on series, you know, I kind of, I want to write books that are not Jesus on anything, just something totally different, totally outside of that box. Um, but I'm, I'm very proud of it. I'm glad I've done it. And, uh, it seems that it's been a blessing to a lot of people. Out of curiosity, when you write these, uh, this, these different Jesus on books, um, are, are you, evolving as you're researching for these books or are these just basically the your beliefs that you're just now getting down to pen and paper um or are you really change are you really going along with this as you're researching and, and being changed by some of these things yeah there is definitely i'm always um in this place i'm trying anyway to not let the cement harden you know what i mean i, I don't ever want to get to a place where i'm where i feel like i'm finished learning or growing or progressing. <laughs> um, so I guess in that sense, I am a progressive. Um, so yeah, I mean, there definitely are things like, for example, um, in some of my earlier books, I probably used, and I, I wrote books before the Jesus Sun series also. So if I, if I kind of pull in other books that I self-published before the Jesus Sun series, absolutely. Um, my views have changed. And even within the Jesus Sun series, a few minor things have changed. Like, like now, not, not so huge, but um, like I, I try not to refer to the Bible as the word of God, because I really think Jesus is the word of God, not the book. Amen. But if you read some of my older books, you're probably going to see me slip in a couple of times. Um, I don't believe that Paul, for example, is really the author of Ephesians or Colossians or, first and second Timothy or Titus, 
but I'll bet you, you can find places in my other books where I quote from those books and say, Paul said, so, um, you know what I mean? Some, some of my, some of my views on certain things have shifted a little bit. Um, but right now it's nothing to the point where I feel like I need to go back and correct something. Um, there was something though, that I did feel very strongly about correcting. Um, I had written a book about house church several years ago called this is my body. Um, and my book, Jesus Unveiled, is actually a rewrite update of that previous book with like probably like another 50, 60 pages of new material added onto it. And, but one of the major things I wanted to correct in that, uh, in that book was that I had said some things about how, at the time, I believed that, you know, um, sort of church leadership was reserved for men and that elders and things like this and deacons were, were only men and all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, now I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't believe that anymore. I don't know. I, I was definitely wrong about that. And so I really, I felt the need, I needed to update that. I needed to republish that book and, and rewrite those chapters and um, sort of correct that. So that was something that I felt needed to be corrected because it really bothered me that I used to say that and believe that. Um, other things, like I said, are just probably at this point minor and who knows though. I mean, I'm, I am on a journey. I am still always trying to learn and grow. Um, I listen to and read, uh, voices outside of, you know, sort of my confirmation bias, um, because I'm just curious about things. So who knows? It it might certainly can happen down the road. So your, uh, your newest book, Unforsaken, really challenges, is meant to challenge the traditional atonement message, um, or me- messages, I guess we should say. Um, and by that, we mean that um, asserting that Jesus did not die as a means to appease God's wrath for sin, but instead uh, in this uh, view of like sacrificial love. Um, yeah. You know, I've supported that position for a long time, um, and but I find it difficult, and you mentioned this towards the beginning, um, I find it difficult to persuade people away from an atonement-only gospel, because that's really w- what it is when you see people share the gospel. It's so heavily atone- atonement that it's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Um, well... It's hard to say why it is, um, but it definitely is worth noting, as you said, and I do this in the book. I mean, I've had people flat out tell me the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement theory. And um, the huge problem with that being, the, if, you're, if you're seriously going to tell me the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement theory, right? Uh, this whole idea that God was angry and wrathful and we're ultimately these filthy, wretched sinners and God can't look at us or be in our presence. And the only way to fix that is Jesus has to come and suffer under the wrath of his father, the wrath that we deserve. And that now that he has, you know, been slaughtered on the cross as this uh, bloody sacrifice, this virgin child sacrifice, now you and I can be, can be forgiven and loved by God and accepted by God. So if that's what you think the gospel is, which again, that's just penal substitutionary atonement theory. What you're trying to convince me and, by, and what you're saying you believe by saying that is that we didn't have the gospel until the 1500s because that view of the, of the cross didn't show up until John Calvin in the 1500s. Like John Calvin is the one that put the atonement in that terminology, in that framework, sort of this legal courtroom framework. God is a judge. You know, we're the accused. We're guilty. You know, Jesus is our advocate, but he jumps in and he also suffers the penalty for us. Um, There's sort of this price that has to be paid. There's no, you know, who's being paid this price? Who, who does God owe? Do we owe something? Does God owe something? You know what? It's, it's kind of murky. But the, the bottom line is that you're, you're wanting us to accept the idea that the gospel, that Jesus didn't give us the gospel. Paul didn't give us the gospel. Peter didn't give us the gospel. The book of Acts doesn't give us the gospel. You know, 1,500 years of church history, no one had the gospel, but suddenly John Calvin figures it out. God gives us the gospel in the 1500s. That's a little crazy. So I want people to understand that that view of the cross, that penal substitutionary atonement way of looking at the cross, 
is not the way Christians thought about the atonement. You know, there's, there's like six or seven other atonement theories that, are, that existed before that. Um, and again, bottom line is they're just theories of the atonement. The reason why there are so many is that they all fail in some way to fully make sense or describe exactly what's happening on the cross because it's not something that's really simple and easy to make sense of. So what you have is 1,500 years of people trying to make sense of it. But I mean, so, so to your question, why has it suddenly become, I mean, I, I guess it's the influence of John Calvin you know, on Christianity in the West, I guess. Um, it's just become something, or probably our evangelism methods, you know, it's become such a part of our evangelism, you know, the, the way people sort of like, we've created a doorway and a pathway for people to come into Christianity. And, and it's this very bumper sticker you know, raise your hand if you, you don't want to burn in hell forever. Okay, say this prayer. Okay, ding, because of what Jesus did, now you get to go to heaven. And if that's the way you got here, then, then of course you're going to assume that's the gospel because that's what you were told and that's what you said yes to and accepted to sort of become, quote unquote, a Christian. Um, so I guess those are things that kind of play into it and reinforce the idea. But I wanted to write this book to give people an awareness of the, the, the history behind this doctrine, that it is a relatively new doctrine. Uh, I, I said that to somebody and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, how could you say that something that, that's been around since the 1500s is new? I go, well, when you have a, when you have a, a Christianity, when you have a religion that's 2000 years old, yeah. yeah, the most 500 years is the most recent 500 years is new <laughs> compared to the other 1500 years. Yeah. Um, I think probably one of the um, most audacious, if we can use that term, uh, theological claims in, in this book is, and I'll be honest, I had never heard of this. I'd never heard of anybody denying this before um, I read your book and when I first read it, I was just like, no, that's not true. <laughs> and uh, I began to, I mean, when I first, that's just the way that I think. And as I got through and, and saw the argument, I was, I was becoming more and more convinced that it might be true. Uh -huh. um, and then by the end of it, I was, I was, I'm probably three fourths of the way there. Like, you know, <laughs> okay. I, I can see it now. I think I can see it now. But I feel uh -huh. like I need just a little bit more to tip me over the edge. But, okay. and, and that was that the sacrificial system in the old Testament was not God ordained. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that that's because the narrative that's created in evangelicalism specifically, if we just want to use them as an example, the narrative is logical. If you, if you start with a sacrificial system for sin and you can see how the narrative works all the way through the New Testament that Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for that, so on and so forth, the narrative makes sense. And that's, I think, why from a logical perspective, um, people um, believe it. But when you take that away, when you take that um, sacrifice, sacrificial system out of the Old Testament, then it's everything's up for grabs. There's you got to redo the narrative and figure out what the heck is Jesus all about. Um, yes. And something that I noticed, my favorite, probably my favorite passage that you quoted was the Jeremiah seven twenty two to twenty three. Um, I'll just read that real quick out of the ESV. Uh, for in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is the command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Now, the NIV has a completely different translation of this. I don't know if you've, if you've looked at that or not. Um, yeah, the NIV is the, is the Bible that I kind of carry around most of the time. So it says, uh, for when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, meaning that I did give them those commands. But also other things, yes. But also other things. Um, but if you go through and look at the more uh, transliterated or literal translation of versions, they all confirm mm -hmm. uh, what you're saying. 
I couldn't yeah. find one that confirmed what the NIV was saying, but it's such a strange how backwards they translated that. And see, this becomes one of our one of the th- one of the problems, right? I mean, Eric, like and I, in my book, Jesus Unbound, I, I you know this is one of the things I cover in that book about the Bible is most of us have English Bibles where we can flip to a passage and say, the Bible says and quote something. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is things like you just pointed out. There are translation problems. There are words added in that shouldn't be there. There are words removed that should be there that were taken out. And when you start noticing how some of the translations, the English translations we have, get a little creative and notice the doctrines that they're getting creative around, right? It's, it's things like this, right? The, this doctrine of penal substitution. Well, we can't have that. So let's put just in there. Let's just insert this idea. So to kind of keep it up there, right? There's, there's, um, there's places in, in Philippians where it says, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the, the word actually should be every, every tongue will joyfully confess it should, that's what it should say, but the word joyfully isn't in there. It just says confess, which now leaves wiggle room for us to believe that, well, at the end, you know, at the judgment, some people will bow their knee and say, Jesus is Lord, but sort of under gritted teeth, compulsion, right? And, and this sort of disgust, like Jesus is Lord, but they don't really mean it. But you can't believe that if you understood that the word is joyfully comple- confess, like it's, it's saying something really different. Mm-hmm. So, so you see the little tweaks around things that suggest universal uh, reconciliation. You see little tweaks around women uh, yeah. having sort of this, their their proper place in the body of Christ and things like that. Sexuality. So this is a, this is constantly a challenge for anybody with an English translation who just reads it face value, and um, and especially if what they're reading seems to support what's being said in the pulpit. You're never unless you start digging, unless somebody. You know, like maybe you read one of my books or, or a book like mine, someone else kind of going, hey, uh, I, dug, I dug a little bit deeper and I found that might not be the right way to think about that, right? Um, until somebody kind of asks the question or exposes some of this kind of creative translation going on, the average person is not going to catch that. Yeah. So um, do you think the atonement has any place in the gospel message? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really do. Uh, I guess I just look at the atonement. Again, I don't look at the atonement in the penal substitutionary way, meaning, as you were saying, you know, what I, what I outline in the book is that God didn't want the sacrificial system, right? Um, mm-hmm. He says this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament. He's very, very vocal about that. Um, Jesus, Jesus affirms that. Other New Testament writers affirm that. The author of Hebrews affirms that. Um, the sacrificial system was not something God wanted. We have examples. I give examples in the book of like, I think seven or eight different times in the old Testament that God says people's sins are forgiven and no bloodshed is involved. Uh, We see Jesus constantly forgiving sins, right? So whatever was happening on the cross, here's what we know wasn't happening that God needed blood so that he could forgive us or accept us. And that's, that idea is supported in the Old and in the New Testament. So, um, but the, it's tough to even talk about it. It really is. It's, it's, it's such a frustrating thing to talk about because there's so many layers to this topic, mm-hmm. more than any other topic I've written on. Like, to, right, so like when you just asked me, is there a place for the atonement, right? Our minds go to the crucifixion mm-hmm. as if the crucifixion is what, created an atonement, meaning uh, it created sort of a, um, it was sort of the magic formula or the, the requirement to bring God and man together. That's what atonement means. It means God and man coming together, being at one, right? Having, having a union and a connection again. So, you know, even that, even the statement that this thing about we need an atonement assumes that that, that that was broken, that God and man were separated, that we weren't connected to God. So there, you have to unpack that. Is that real? Is that true? Well, no, actually, we don't see any evidence of that. You know, all, all the verses we've been given that have said, or, or the things, all the sermons we've heard that suggest that, you know, our sins have separated us from God. If you go and look at the scriptures, you don't really find scriptures that, that, that hold that up. 
So it's, again, not that we really were separate from God. Now, Paul talks about us being separated from God in our minds. So in a way, there was a perceived separation. And, and the death of Jesus does go a long way towards uh, correcting this misunderstanding of our connection to God. But the assumption that sort of like Jesus had to be nailed to a cross specifically so that, you know, God's mind about us would be changed. No, God's, you know, if anything, it's maybe helping us change our minds about ourselves and who God is. Um, but the reality is that we've always been connected to God. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, Paul, Paul says. You know, not angels, not demons, not the future, not the past, um, you know, not even death. So, you know, um, the death of, I'd, I'd rather say it this way. Jesus offering himself to, submitting himself to the wrath of humanity um, and suffering under our wrath against him, even though he's innocent. And the way he does that, his desire and willingness to do that, and then his resurrection to return and breathe peace upon us and forget, you know, forgiving even in the act of doing it, forgiving as he comes back. All of that is beautiful and necessary because it helps us really see the heart of the Father. Right? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's, it's very important in that sense. Yes, it's very, very important because what, it, what Jesus is doing is showing us by saying, you know, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. And then when we look at Jesus, what we see is someone who forgives always, doesn't wait to ask. He doesn't even wait for repentance. He doesn't even wait for anyone to ask for forgiveness. He just forgives. Mm -hmm. um, he loves. He submits himself. He suffers our wrath. He lets go of his power over us. He gives us power and says, do, do whatever you want to me. And, and I love you even as you're doing it. So, yes, in all those ways, absolutely, the atonement is a necessary and beautiful part of the gospel. But what I try to also point out in the book is that I want us, we focus so much on the crucifixion. We focus so much on the death of Jesus on the cross. I would really encourage us, and I tried to do this in the book, to widen our scope a little bit. Like just pull back on the camera a little bit. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, get, a, let's get a widescreen view of, because I think if we don't really first start with understanding the incarnation, what's going on in the incarnation, and also then the life of Jesus, what he taught, how he lived, and yes, the crucifixion, but then also the resurrection and Pentecost and everything that happens after that. Like, I think we have to take the entire thing in its entirety rather than only focusing only on the death of Jesus. I think the way Christians, again, have been raised to think is that we really just need Jesus for his blood. We just I mean, you know, go look at the, even the early Christian creeds, right? Even the Christian creeds are basically we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, we believe that he was the son of God and we believe that he died on a cross and rose from the dead and he's coming again. Whoa. What, what happened between his birth and his death? Like there's a huge gap there. You just jumped right over that. We just need him to exist and die and come back. But that's not true, right? I think we definitely need to have a, a better picture of Jesus that yeah. the part about his life, the Sermon on the Mount, the things that he taught, the way he lived, these radical things that he did and said, um, that has got to be the nugget. That's got to be the most important thing for us to focus on, not just that he died. Yeah. So it, it, if then that message is, um, well, I mean, it can be multiple things, but I guess what I'm left with is he came to do the will of God. Yes. Uh, the passage is, is escaping me, but there is a passage where he says, I have come to do the will of the father. That's in Hebrews. And so that, that, I mean, I can't think of any other, um, message that we would be proclaiming other than, well, that's what we're to do. And in his life then was that example. Is that right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of the, um, there, there was a view of the atonement where um, the understanding of the atonement was, it was basically the Christ's example. So his, he, Jesus gives us a blueprint. He gives us a clearest picture of what God is like. And at the same time, uh, the clear picture of what we the life we should live. So he becomes our blueprint for living this life, this kingdom way of living. Um, yes. And so that's some of the most important ways. 
Um, I'm looking for the verse in Hebrews that you're mentioning because I, I do talk about this in, in the book. Um, I don't have it in front of me. I'm gonna have, well, I have it in front of me, but I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to find the exact passage. But yeah, there's, there's a place in Hebrews where, um, where Jesus says in Hebrews, you know, that, you know, I have come to do your will. Um, but, but in the same passage, he says, uh, you have not desired blood or sacrifice. And so it's a beautiful picture of like, okay, if Jesus came to do the will of the Father, but it, he's just finished telling you that God doesn't want blood, doesn't want sacrifice. Ah, okay. So if Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father, whatever it was, it wasn't about something needing to die and bleed. And that's, that's implicit in the statement in Hebrews. So uh, at the same time, right, there's that, that famous passage in Hebrews where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's usually the first thing that pops into people's minds, you know, when they hear someone, you and I talking about this kind of topic about, oh, that sacrificial system in the Old Testament wasn't really God's idea. Well, what do you do about this? It says, in, this is the New Testament. It says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But go back and look to the, at that actual verse in Hebrews, and what it's saying is under the law. So, in other words, in the under the old covenant, this was something that was required. But his whole point in Hebrews is he's constantly contrasting the old covenant, which he says is flawed and obsolete, and there was something wrong with it. And uh, and so, with Jesus and a new covenant, that's a better covenant. We have a better high priest. We have a better example. Right, he you know even starts off the chapter Hebrews chapter one, saying you know in times past God spoke to us through these prophets and these other people, but now He has spoken to us through His Son, who is the exact representation of the Father. It's night and day, right? Mm -hmm. This sort of murky, kind of cloudy. You know, we're not sure these guys said some things, but hey, we now have Jesus, and so this is better. And so it's always in contrast in Hebrews, like, yeah, under the old covenant, they did this. But then he has Jesus telling you, hey, the father doesn't care about blood being shed. God, the father doesn't want or require sacrifice for sins. And yet Jesus has come to do the father's will. So it, it isn't about this needing, requiring some sort of, um, you know, I need something innocent to bleed and die before I can love you or forgive you. That's, that sounds like Molech. That sounds like the volcano God. Hmm. Yeah, that's all. That's all real good stuff. Um, definitely want to uh, get people interested in looking at this book. Um, I've I've gone through it a couple of times now, and just every time I go through it, I'm picking up something new. So um, it's such a great book. Um, Thank you. I want to jump into for a minute uh, before you lose your mind. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> that didn't that didn't sound right. But that's the title the, of a book. Right? That's the title of the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, was this? If I understand this correctly, this book is a response to what the Gospel Coalition published. Is that true? Before you lose your faith, yes. what were the circumstances about that? Yeah. So uh, it's only been maybe a little over a month ago. Um, I think we were recording the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and uh, so it was me and Matt DiStefano, Derek Day, Katie Ballantyne, Ralph Palindo, who is the producer of the, of the podcast, and he's also uh, the publisher of Choir. And um, somebody brought up, like, hey, have you seen this book the Gospel Coalition is doing called Before You Lose Your Faith? And uh, he showed us, you know, the cover and a little bit, a little blurb about what it was going to be, and basically all these contributors from the Gospel Coalition, which is a, you know, very fundamentalist evangelical uh, Christian website, we're going to be writing a book about deconstruction. And it's sort of, we all had sort of this immediate visceral reaction of what? How could these guys <laughs> be writing a book on deconstruction? They're kind of the cause of most people's deconstruction. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's sort of like, hey, it would be almost like somebody was saying it was like the analogy is something like, it's almost like Philip Morris deciding we're going to make a movie about, you know, uh, how to avoid cancer. Like, the dangers of yeah, smoking. <laughs> you're the ones that made cigarettes for decades, right? So um, that's what it feels like. Anyway, yeah, so that was the first thought. And then I think then, I don't, I don't know if it was me or someone, but somebody said, we should do a response book. We should write one. Because like, if anybody should write a book on deconstruction, choir should do it, right? We have all these choir authors. 
amazing authors who've already published lots of really great books on this subject of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, people that have actually themselves gone through deconstruction, um, people that you know what, they, know what it feels like, that have empathy and sympathy, who are not going to tell you that deconstruction is bad and you should stop doing it, which is really what their book does, but to say, hey, you're on the right track. Yeah, you're asking good questions. You're, you're, you're questioning toxic theology. And you're on, you know, keep going. This is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, look, we could probably really quickly, you know, since all of us have books already published on this, these topics, let's just take a chapter from different books that are already published and just put them together and, and let's make a response book. And um, that was the initial idea. Um, and a lot of it, so I'd say the, probably the majority of the chapters in the books by the contributors are like that. They're basically like, let me take a chapter from my existing book where I wrote about this topic. Um, we'll, we'll edit it a little bit so it'll kind of fit into this book. Um, and it'll also be like, hey, you know, if you want, if you like this chapter, you know, go and read the, go and read the full book. However, several of the contributors wrote brand new material, like from scratch, like I want to write something specifically about deconstruction and reconstruction, specifically countering some of the arguments in the Gospel Coalition book and um, and so it's kind of a mixture of that. So I edited the book. I did I did write an introduction, and I did submit one chapter about the, about the Bible, about how to read the Scripture uh, through the lens of Christ. But the other contributors are um, Brandon Andrus, Mark Karras, Matthew DeStefano, Michelle Collins, Katie Valentine, uh, Derek Day, Brandon Dragan, Josh Rogie, Skeeter Wilson. And uh, Jason Elam, he, uh, I love Jason Elam. He, he's one of my heroes and he wrote a, a brand new chapter. And also uh, Maria Francesca French, who is becoming one of my new heroes. She, I met her just through the process of doing this book and she's amazing. Her chapter is incredible. They're all great. So our goal was to get it out, number one, quickly, because we wanted to have a quick response. So we did that. I think our book came out like maybe a month after theirs came out. And um, we've been number one since we yeah. came out. Last I checked this morning, we're still number one under category. Um, the, the Kindle edition is 99 cents and it will always be 99 cents. That's not a sale price. Mm. That is the price because we want as many people as possible to have access to this book. And no one, by the way, no one's making any money on this book. I'm not making any money on this book. It's truly a labor of love. Um, we want really as many people as possible who really are going through deconstruction to have access to you know, a book that will affirm them and help them in their deconstruction process. So you and I have a, uh, a fellow enemy in Miss uh, Elisa Childers. Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to call her an enemy. I would just say we, we definitely disagree. <laughs> and I would love to talk to her one day. Yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of people would love to talk to her someday. Um, could you for... Um, and the reason I brought her, I don't like to give her attention, but the reason I, I brought her up was because um, there are a lot of evangelicals out there who may not understand the purpose of deconstruction. Could you yeah. explain what deconstruction is and why it's, you think it's important for the Christian faith? Yeah, so deconstruction is really just coming to a place where you begin to ask some pretty honest and hard questions about your Christianity, some things that you were raised believing that you kind of start going, I don't know if I believe that anymore. Is that true? You know? And so it could be anything. Uh, I, I have a course I put together called square one that helps walk people through deconstruction into reconstruction. And one of the things that I've identified is sort of like, like sort of six pillars of deconstruction. There's way more than that. But uh, as I, in just in my experience, some of the major things that people sort of the first domino, if you will, or the first thread that gets pulled um, is usually one of these six things. It's either the doctrine of hell, um, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, like we're talking about, the inerrancy of scripture, um, sort of the end times, you know, people keep setting dates and it never happens. And so like, what's up with this whole Jesus coming back any minute thing? Um, the question of suffering, you know, like why, if, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world and these kind of things? Um, or the way the church maybe responds to, you know, the LGBTQ community or things like that. 
and again, there's other there's there's other sort of pillars or threads that sort of the, and and not everybody starts. It's not sequential, right? So mm-hmm. you could start for you. It might be this inerrancy of the scripture thing. You're not sure you believe in it. You start looking into it, and you finally decide, you know what? I don't believe that anymore. I reject that view, and I have now. I have a different view, or the doctrine of hell. I don't believe in eternal torment anymore. I believe something else. So deconstruction is just really the process of of questioning some of the toxic theology you were raised with doing some investigation, kind of like realizing you don't believe that anymore and shifting your view on that. So that's really all it is. But to people like Alyssa Childers or Sean McDowell or Mike Winger or the Gospel Coalition, um, anyone who dares question any of these sort of uh, what they would say are pillars of Christianity, um, you're not a Christian anymore if you doubt penal substitution. You're not really Christian anymore if you doubt the inerrancy of scripture. Um, So in their mind, it's not deconstruction, it's really deconversion. You're not a Christian anymore if you don't agree with, basically agree with them on all of these sort of main points. Um, And so I think that's one of the reasons why they push back so hard against it. But I I would say the other reason I think they push back so hard against it is that they can't ignore it anymore like so many, probably hundreds of thousands of people now are in this deconstruction mode. They're asking these questions. They're walking away from their church. They're yep. moving outside, you know, the traditional Christian circles. And it kind of scares them that they, um, they, they, they have created the problem in that they have not allowed people to have honest questions and to maintain fellowship and connection with these people, even if they change their mind about something. So it's basically you're in, you either believe us or you're rejected, you're out. And because of that, I mean, they really have helped kind of push people out of the church, push people outside of traditional Christianity. And that's where people have found themselves now who have deconstructed their faith. Yeah, and I, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think that evangelicals, conservative evangelicals in particular, are as angry or as frustrated with the fact that they are pushing that they're pushing back because you're denying God as much as you're denying evangelicalism and right. their beliefs. They're, yes. It's like an, they're offended that you would challenge what their tradition holds. And so that's where I think a lot of the angst is really coming from. Right. And this is, this is exactly why you see people like Alyssa Childers and Mike Winger and these guys. Um, if you don't agree with them, right? So if you don't, let's say you reject penal substitutionary atonement theory, they would say you're not a Christian. They would say you're rejecting the gospel. And yet what they're doing is they're not just condemning progressive Christians who, who reject those ideas. They're rejecting the entire Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah. Because, in other words, there are entire denominations, millions of Christians all over the planet who don't agree with Alyssa Childers on all these different points of doctrine. And yet their, their reaction is to say, if you don't agree with me on these points, you're not a real Christian. And it's such a divisive statement. It's such a divisive posture to basically alienate um, the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ around around the world because they don't agree with you on all these specific points of doctrine. It's... Yeah. And I don't think they, I don't think what the, I don't think they understand is they're really in the minority here. They're not as majority as as they think they are. I think they think they're representing Christianity yeah. on the whole around the world. And really they're just representing a minority Western perspective. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, um, and they also don't recognize, I did a, a couple of videos on this, um, specifically responding to Alyssa Childers on this point. Cause again, Alyssa and others, you know, they're, they're pushing back so hard against progressive Christianity because these are new teachings. Right. And then, like I was saying a minute ago, what they don't recognize is probably most of their doctrines they hold so dear are new. Mm-hmm. Again, if you take the 2000 year scope of the history of Christianity, penal substitution only came, only showed up in the last 500 years. Um, dispensationalism, John Nelson Darby and this whole end times rapture view of the end times that showed up in the 1830s. Like, so there's all kinds of views that would really be progressive. Like you understand you believe things that are new that are not, traditional Christianity, but that's constantly the way they communicate it. They'll say, if you don't agree with me, you're rejecting traditional Christianity. Well, that's only if you define traditional Christianity as what, the 1850s, 
mm-hmm. since the 1850s. So what was Christianity before that? Right? I don't know yeah. what you, everybody is a heretic. Nobody was a Christian until you guys showed up and, and set us straight. That It's kind of this arrogant way of, of thinking about yourself and your specific sort of views and doctrines. I mean, this is even the reason why, you know, we started the Heretic Happy Hour was just kind of mocking this idea of calling someone a heretic. You're just, yeah. all you're saying is, I disagree with some of your theology, but you know, even the person saying to, to me and you, you're a heretic because you don't agree with me, you don't recognize there's probably three or four other denominate, Christian denominations that would call you a heretic. They call the other guy a heretic, right? Because, oh, you don't, you don't believe in Christus Victor theory? Oh, you believe in God tortures people for eternity? Yeah, you're not a Christian, you're a heretic. Mm-hmm. And they would have legitimate right to say that because those their views are actually older that have been around longer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Heretic is definitely a, a these days more of a badge of honor, in my opinion, than yes, it is. Yeah, that's why we turn it into a badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, let's uh, before we wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about your square one. Um, yeah. Can you explain uh, what it is? What what you got going on with this project? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been doing this almost two years now. Um, I basically had realized, you know, so much of my own personal, like my blogs and my books and the podcast, it's all very focused on deconstruction. And I think that's great. I mean, I, I'm still doing it. I think it's, it, it needs to be done. But what I recognized was there was really nothing out there intentionally focused on the reconstruction part of it. So, um, and, and I personally had spent years you know, talking to people, having phone calls or, or Zoom chats or whatever with people one at a time for anywhere from half an hour to an hour, listening to their struggles and trying to give them some advice and help them. And then most of the time, I never hear from those people again. So I just, I never know what happened to them. What, you know, did that work? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I was, I felt like, you know what, I wanted to create something where it would be more intentional uh, on focused on helping people figure out what is deconstruction? What, what is, why is this happening to me? Uh, how do I navigate it? And how do I move, make a transition into a reconstruction of faith? Whatever that looks like. I, I, don't, I do not tell people how to reconstruct. I'm not telling them what it sh- where they should land. I'm really just trying to lay a buffet in front of them of options and give them an opportunity to sort of see what works for them moving forward. And so really that's what it's all about. So it's a 12 week online course and community. Um, it's called square one. Um, and we basically, there's a video lecture every week that I do on a specific topic. There's a little bit of homework that I ask them to do during the week. We have a, uh, a zoom call at the end of the week where we just kind of check in and Hey, how, how did that go? Where are you at? What works? What doesn't? And uh, Hey, let's get ready for next week. And here's what we're doing next week. And so we do that for 12 weeks. Um, and it's been amazing. I, I've just seen people really find hope and direction. Um, and, and honestly, the thing that's been great about it as well, and I didn't really expect this, was the community aspect. Hmm. Um, these people that spend 12 weeks together in this course have started bonding together, really you know, saying to one another, you're my church, you're my community, you're my family, because my real family has rejected me. My church family won't you know, talk to me. Um, but you know, this is a safe place that I can meet other people that are going through what I'm going through. And we don't have to be on the same page, you know, to accept one another, but we're willing to listen to one another and let people be where they're at. So, um, yeah, it's been an amazing experience. I'm, I've been, I'm so glad that I decided to go ahead and get it going. Uh, and since then we've started a square two group, which is just a continuation of the, uh, you know, people go through square one and they're like, this is great. Let's keep going. So uh, I put together a square two. It's also a 12 week course. And, um, and then the final one, there's a square three and it's just an online zoom community. So once a week, anybody who's been through one and two uh, can just come and we just have a weekly zoom call and we talk about pretty much anything anybody wants to talk about. And those have been really great too. Well, that sounds wonderful. You acting kind of as a mentor for people out there who are, uh, struggling in the faith. How often do you have these uh, each year? So yeah, they run every 90 days. So um, okay. the next one coming up actually is Monday, May 10th. So very quickly here. Um, and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but um, if it's after that date and you're interested in it, um, if it's not too late, I could, I, you can probably jump in early uh, the first week or two and, and not suffer too much. 
But if it's beyond that, if it's far beyond that date, um, you can let me know and I can, you know, you can register and set up, kind of be on the waiting list for the next round. So yeah, the next one will run um, in August. Okay. Yeah, we'll have all the links to your stuff in the description. Uh, what's uh, the website? Um, the website, just to find out more about Square One is, mm -hmm. okay, it's B, K, and the number two, S, Q, and the number one, Dot com. It's sort of short for back to square one. So bk2sq1.com. And you'll see square one, two, and three. Also, I'll have a whole lot of other online courses I've done based on my books. So um, you can and go And they can through. register there too? They can register there too. But you know what I'll do, Eric? I'll send you a link uh, because I, I'm offering like a 75% discount on square one. Wow. And uh, for people, and I'll also say this, uh, every round of square one, I take anywhere from 50, so like probably 12 to 18 people every time. Mm -hmm. And okay. that's, that's, that's typically a good size for the group. Yeah. Um, but I've done this since day one. Um, I always offer free seats, like sponsored seats. Okay. So, um, and usually every time there's anywhere from four to six people in every group that were, that have free seats and sponsored seats. And these are for people who like, they hear what I'm talking about. Like, man, Keith, I really need this square one thing. I really want to get into this, but I can't afford it right now. Um, I don't ever want anybody who needs this kind of a course and community to not have access to it. So if you're interested in one of those free seats, if you're listening to this, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you information. People can send me mm -hmm. an email uh, either through Facebook or Twitter, or I can give you my direct email. Um, and if you're interested in one of those free seats, I'm more than happy to uh, talk to you about how to, how to go about that. Oh, that sounds wonderful, Keith. Thank you so much. Hey, and thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Thanks, Eric. This was, this was a blast. Um, I love talking to you anytime.